parents are often very like worried about, I mean, you know, all this like you can't show that you're kind of a angry person with feelings. And I think that's kind of a mistake. I mean, I think kids have to see parents as, you know, as human and fallible, but able to apologize and shift and change also, right? Yeah. Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and sex in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a parenting expert and founder of the coaching service Family Matters New York. With her solution-oriented approach, she's been helping parents and kids navigate challenges for over 30 years. Here to talk to us about parenting babies and toddlers is Alice Kultman. All right. So, welcome Alice Kultman. It's so good to have you on Lovelink. I'm very happy to be here. I think it's just a great idea and I'm really happy to talk to you guys. And we're especially excited because Simone and I both have a child now. So, we have lots of questions for you. I know. Yeah, I this could yeah. <laughs> I when you guys sort of sent me like a preview of what you might ask me, I'm like these are clearly two new moms who are like <laughs> Have, have this basically on their minds all the time, hopefully keeping it a little bit at bay when they're dealing with their clients, but probably not because, you know, it's hard when you're a new mom to, you know, not think about anything else. So. Absolutely. I know, especially when you're working from home now and you're having to like parallel your attention between client and a crying baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That is tough. It's really tough. Yeah, we could probably do a whole podcast on parenting during COVID, but maybe that's for another time. Yeah, yeah. So before we, we kind of get started into all of our detailed questions about being a parent, um, tell us a little bit about how you got into parenting and parent coaching. Well, I have been practicing uh, as a you know psychotherapist for almost for 30 years now, um, in private practice for 30 years. And I started out early on as a couples and family therapist, sort of specializing in more um, systems work and strategic family therapy. So I was sort of more Ackerman family-based sort of uh, approach to couples and families. And, you know, but then, you know, of course, that kind of as practices sort of develop over time, you know, I would see individuals also. I sort of kind of always had a specialty in um, with dealing with creative artists. And um, I, early on, I had a, a sort of worked a lot with eat, uh, the family of eat, eating disordered families, which was always, you know, a laugh riot. Um, <laughs> uh, so... I guess really what happened in terms of my interest in parenting per se is that I've always been a very directive therapist. I, you know, I'm an, I'm a restless, impatient creature by nature. So sitting with people's feelings and just, you know, um, processing on the sort of deep emotional level was sort of, I don't think it was ever my, my, my jam or my forte. I mean, I could do it and I was good at it, but particularly with families and 
couples, I felt really depleted afterwards. And I also noticed that mostly, particularly, I'm a hat is off to you guys as couples therapists. And I'm always saying this to my, my colleagues who are couples therapists. It's like, I get so fucking sick. I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on your... Oh, go for that. it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would get very like fed up with sort of what was the regressive infantile behavior of couples who mostly come into couples therapy when their relationships are pretty much on the skids anyway and so all of the regressive infantile behavior would just drive me crazy and you know my my impulse always in therapy even with individuals is to say so all right so this fine but so what are you gonna do about it like so I got I was very much more of an action-oriented therapist from the get-go so moving into sort of you know a parent focused coaching sort of business as opposed to a therapy business sort of evolved about say like eight years ago, 10 to eight years ago. Um, and I just thought, you know, I'm really good with kids. I also loved working with kids. So I did a lot of individual work with kids. Um, but, and, and of course, obviously when you work with kids, you end up working with the parents also. So sort of finding creative strategies for people that, you know, kind of were tailor made to their particular dynamics as parents and their kids. I was also finding, and it's even more so now that, you know, the generation of parents from, you know, again, like 10 years ago, coming forward to now, just like overwhelmed with information and books and, you know, websites and everybody's on their phones constantly seeing other people's pictures of family gatherings and so it's like there's all this sort of bombardment both of like concrete information and false information right so it always felt had felt very grounding to have like parents in my office just sort of being dealt with like as individuals you know so that that sort of is how my parent coaching business pretty much evolved I guess so and just for our listeners can you describe the difference between like psychotherapy and coaching I mean you've alluded to it like coaching is more directive but I'm curious if you could say a few things about that difference yeah it's very directive so like I will be talking to people and they'll, for example, they might be saying, giving me an example of something that their kid does that drives them crazy. And I'll right away say, okay, why don't you try this, right? You know, you know, set a timer, have a real clock, you know, let's say if it's a thing about like transitions or getting out, out the door, I'm not, I don't wait (laughs) to hear a long explanation necessarily before I'm kind of interjecting advice pretty much the whole hour. So people come out of it with a, like, you know, whole kind of notebook full of like techniques to use potentially. I mean, that's not to say that I'm not still like kind of paying attention to like underlying, you know, psychodynamics because I'm not going to tell kind of a person who I don't think can hear or or do something that's um really playful if they are clearly not a playful person you know I'll play I'll play I'll I'll try to maybe get to a place where their strengths uh, as a parent can be expressed a different way but I'm not I'm not reflecting back a lot. I'm mostly taking in and doing my own kind of synthesis of after 30 years, I'm pretty good at this of like where people are at um, and then giving them advice that I think they can hear. Um, Which I have to say, I feel like with parenting, coaching makes a lot of sense. 
Like there's so much anxiety. There's so much need for direction. And like you said, there is so much information out there, so many resources. I mean, just in the sleep alone, I've been given three different books. There's so many different like educational workshops. I mean, it's hard to know what the best thing is. And when there's too much, that just escalates the anxiety. So I can imagine for the parents that are in your office, it's so regulating to have someone say, okay, we know your situation and these are some concrete things that you can walk away with trying. Exactly, and it's also kind of, there's a lot of what I do, particularly with parents of younger kids, is really I feel like a lot of it is talking them down off the ledge. Like they think that their kids are going to become psychopaths if you know they push somebody off a slide. Um, you know they think their kids are you know have ADHD because they you know won't listen to them at four o'clock in the afternoon. Or you know there's like a lot of stuff that that parents have assumptions about or make assumptions based on behavior that is completely not necessarily true right so, so your work of, is just a lot of normalizing a lot of normal there's a lot of normalizing yeah. and a lot of like kind of um trying to support people's strengths you know and kind of like bring that out so they can feel sturdier and like in in their decision making and also just to kind of yeah normalizing that like pretty much everybody's life is a complete you know chaotic mess for at least the first five years of parenting so oh god you know yeah. buckle in <laughs> right. Buckle in. Get, yeah. right be prepared and then you go through this like halcyon phase when kids are like really cute and they love you till they're about 12 and then it like goes to hell again till they're about you know 16 17 so, <laughs> so you see new parents and then you yeah. see them a little bit later on mostly <laughs> it's like... interesting how it breaks down that way it's like yeah i mostly see people whose kids are under six and then i see people whose kids are in high school so it's, you know, that middle area where they're, you're not, you're not like, you know, rejected entirely or, you know, and I mean, they always say adolescence is the second, you know, experience of toddlerhood. It's sort of the same kind of separation and acting the, out. Yeah. The limit set, the limits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking when we were talking about being a new parent, there is a lot of information overload. And also I feel very at sea. Like, you know, we're not, we don't get any training on being a parent when we're growing up or, and most people, I mean, I didn't get any from my mom either until I actually had a kid. And then it was like, suddenly you're bombarded with all of this new information. And to, so to have a coach like you seems very, very helpful. Um, to be able also to sort through all that noise. And I wonder, you know, just thinking about all the noise that's out there, like what are some of the common misconceptions that people come in with when, when they see you about parenting and about what they should, I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, there's a laundry list, but what are some of like the major ones that you see when people are coming into your office as new parents? Well, I would, say, I would say one of the biggest conflicts I see sometimes is or what people want some kind of like sort of, middle middle ground about is sort of the difference between like limit setting and consequences and permissiveness right so there's always like are we being too permissive are we being too strict are we you know like that like that i think is a big thing because people you know these these babies come out and they're like nature and nurture little you know kind of moldable things so everybody wants to know like well do we like say no you can't have that now or do we say yeah okay you can have that now you know it's sort of so I'd say that's 
probably the biggest thing, right? Limit it's setting, scary. I guess. And it's scary, I think, as a parent to know how much power or to think how much power you have. Like, if I don't set enough limits, they're going to be, right, like a psychopath who's going to just feel entitled and take over the world. If I do too much, they're going to either rebel or push back or maybe they're going to retreat. I mean, the the consequences feel really high risk. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And particularly in the early years when they sort of don't have language yet or just starting to have language and you you don't really know like um what's really going on in their brains it's very difficult to know like what to what how much to set limits um i mean i think one thing i'd say to almost every you know i bring a lot of like developmental stuff into the sessions too so there's a certain psychoeducational component too about you know the the sort of belief that you know all kids under the age of eight don't care what kind of um attention they get they'll go for whichever is the most rewarding and easiest to get so that's why a lot of kids will keep pushing buttons and sort of you know just constantly put themselves in positions where their parents feel like they have to reprimand them because it they haven't made that link yet to like oh it feels better to be good and get good things. They're just like, they'll go for the attention however they want, right? And that's kind of a developmental thing. Another like thing that parents always have to keep in mind is that, you know, again, particularly like, I'd say up to five or six kids are completely present focused, like whatever they're doing, and this isn't because they're trying to like not listen to you or be difficult. It's like, you know, if they're on the ground, like playing with Legos and you're like, come on, it's time to go to Disneyland. They're not going to be like, even though you're doing this cool thing that they've been expecting and you've been talking about, they'll be like, no, I'm like, you know, solving world hunger. I've got like the real, you know, <laughs> no, so, like I've got the real cure. So you have to think of that way. It's like they are like, you know, they have the cure for COVID on in the Legos, you know, like that's how it feels to them. So it's like you, you can't like break into that and expect it's going to be easy right and then and that's a big thing for parents like they don't get it it's like we're offering this like fabulous like thing right here and out the door and you're still here on the floor you know with the half stale piece of toast and your legos it's just like but that's where the kids kids are you know so how do you help these parents help the kids transition well, a lot of stuff with the present focus thing is um, I often use a technique with parents. It's about it's like calling a show because I, you know, I have a background as a performing artist. So I was a dance professional dancer for many years. And I don't know, you know, when you call a show, you have like an hour to curtain. So we talk about like, you know, even like for kids who can who are old enough to comprehend like an analog clock, you know, you getting like a big real clock and really kind of just making distinctions between the periods of time, like when the big hand is here and the little hand is here, this is the period of time where you get to do this. And then Mm. at each transitional point, parents have to like get down on their kid's level and look them right in the eye and make sure their kids are, have eye contact with them. And they, they kind of say, so what's the next thing on the agenda? And the kids have to say what it is. And then the parents you know, or, you know, then, then the parents can like leave and go and do whatever they're going to do for the next 15 minutes. And you keep, you keep coming back and you can't like do the thing where you call from the other room, you know, so there's a lot of sort of advanced preparation that 
you know, helps that kind of like, whoa, wait a second, you know, it's time to leave, you know, everyone has to kind of do it and be kind of organized in it. I mean, within the time, the little periods of time, there's play and sort of looseness. But at all those points of calling for the show, when you get to the end, it's like, you know, first one, you have like half hour to, to, to curtain, right? Then you have 15 minutes to curtain, then you 10, 5, 1. So it gets closer towards the end when you're sort of about to go out on stage, but um, or out the door to school or leaving in the playground or whatever it is. And so the transition, I, I, that's one of my favorite things to kind of share with people. And it means parents being part of not expect also another thing is not having the expectation that the kids are gonna do it without clear motivation but you don't want to set them up for failure yeah, yeah and none of the none of the stuff I ever offer to parents ever works unless the parents are fully committed to it first right because kids pick up on that right they have like ESP they know when you're like really in it or not so right right yeah. right and you what know, do they do if they can sense you're not in it they won't do it why, why should they, why should they invest their, you know, kind of shifting of behavior in something that their parents clearly are not invested in, you know? Um. I'm really curious to hear about how you help parents manage temper tantrums, because that is something, I have a lot of clients actually who have young kids and that's that comes up again and again. It creates conflict between the parents. It creates conflict with the child. Sometimes the child favors one parent when they're having a temper tantrum and only one parent can sue them. I mean, it's all kinds of psychodynamic stuff we could get into around that, but I'm, I'm wondering how you, how you help parents do that. Well, that's like a whole session. <laughs> Right, that's often <laughs> yeah. like, you know, and that's a lot about taking in people's sort of emotional auras, like parents' mm. sort of vibes, and seeing like what kind of energy they present um, and what kind of energy their kids get off of them. So that's one thing I, I do for myself. Um, I'm a firm believer in, you know, you can't teach during a tantrum. Tantrums aren't time for words. Tantrums are very kind of time for sort of physical de-escalation. And so um, there's a great, what's his name? I think his name is Jed Baker. Um, he's, he has a good book out that's called No More Meltdowns. And it's he does a lot of stuff along the lines that I believe in, which is identifying for yourself as a parent before you get pulled into the kind of energy of the tantrum. Like, is this hunger? Is this fatigue? Is this overstimulation or is this manipulation, right? So if it's manipulate, if it's a manipulative tantrum, like they're kind of doing it so that you'll give them the thing they want that they really don't need or shouldn't have, then you, you know, you may, there are other things you, you might do around that. But in the moment, the main thing is to get your kid, a kid who's having a tantrum is in a state of disequilibrium and they need to be balanced. So, you know, I'm just going to tell you a few things I talk to people about, but, you know, again, it, it varies depending on the situation, the age of the kid, the size of the kid, but lots of times it's about, you know, sort of bear hugging and breathing and just getting a kid to do some deep breathing with a parent. And that means being able to tolerate holding and squirming. Um, it's great if you can get them from the back around the front so that they can feel your chest against their back and feel your breathing sort of going on and, um, and not 
you know, and this is a big thing with any kind of um, disruptive behavior sort of stuff that people want help with is just the language you use isn't like you need to calm down. You know, it's like, whoa, I'm feeling really stressed out, buddy. I need to calm down. Can you help me calm down? I'm feeling really, I'm upset right now. Not like you need to calm down. You need to calm down. You need because to what that's that's blaming, it's blaming. feels attacking. It, it's attacking, yeah. and it's 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 also it's also um, spotlighting, right? So if you take on the more parents can take on the emotional sort of gestalt of what's going on with their kid, and not ever even put it on the kid until they're older, the better. Like it's like, whoa, I'm so tired. I really think I need to go to sleep. Oof, I'm exhausted. You know, I need a nap. I'm going to go lie down in the other room. I'm so tired. Will you come with me? Like, never like, <laughs> it's time for your nap, you know, or, you know, or I'm really hungry. Oh, I'm really hungry for dinner. I wonder what's for dinner. Mmm, yum. Ooh, pasta. <laughs> you know, oh, tomatoes. You know, whatever. It's like, you just, like, are your kid in these situations. Cause, Which is... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so that's it's just so true. I'm thinking about the times when I, even I get like really low blood sugar level and I'm really hungry and I actually I'm so kind of distressed. I don't even have the hunger cues and it takes someone else being like, let's put some food in front of us. I mean, like that yeah. that way of kind of managing. But that requires a kind of a, a emotional maturity and ability to regulate from the parent. Exactly. Too, I imagine. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I and especially during those tantrums when I'm sure parents are also in this state of a distress mm-hmm. and kind of panic. Yeah. How, yeah. How do you help parents kind of calm their own nervous? Well, systems? you know, they have to sort of I mean, with your kids old enough, um, you know, or if you can make sure they're in like a safe space, just even taking like five minutes to go into another physical environment yourself and sort of do some deep breathing and just say detach, detach, detach. You know, this isn't um, about my kids need to control me. This is a moment where I need to kind of just like go in there and, you know, just get them to a state of balance. It's not about what I assume this behavior means or um, that they're doing this intentionally. I mean, kids are hardwired to push our buttons. It's kind of how far, how fast, how long, you know, like how they're, they're testing limits to figure out what the limits are. And yeah, it's really like, ideally what parents are doing is um, showing them where the boundaries are and the limits are in a, in a kind of, you know, not completely, you know, heartbreaking way. Like, oh, there are limits in the world. Oh, damn. You know, it's like, oh, okay. So that maybe that's better that I don't, you know, run out into traffic because there are tr- cars in the road, you know? Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is, I'll say there is, that's one area. Like if a kid is in danger like physical danger that's one at one point where I'm always a firm believer in like very firm authoritative on the verge of yelling kind of voice Mm -hmm. right if they're gonna like hurt themselves or they're about you know gonna really hurt somebody else you know you're allowed to go (laughs) you know don't do that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then you know when at a later time when everyone's calm well rested well fed and in a good mood you can revisit the situation and talk about it more kind of in a calmer way. But in those moments, it's 
And it also makes sense that you want it to be memorable enough. Like yeah. you want it to jostle the kids so that they now remember, oh my God, running into the street means yeah. mom's going to get really angry. Exactly. Like that, that kind of mini trauma is probably important to <laughs> yeah. like metabolize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I find like parents are often very like worried about like, I mean, you know, all this like you can't like show that you're kind of a angry person with feelings. And I think that's kind of a mistake. I mean, I think kids have to see parents as you know, as human and fallible and, but able to apologize and shift and change also. Right. Yeah. Mm, Right. So yeah, I love this idea of it's okay to be angry in the moment, but then when you're calmer later on, you can talk about it. You can repair, you can yeah, help the kid understand why you went to that place. Yeah. I think like a lot of times, even if, even if parents lose their shit like once or twice a day, it's not like a kid is being traumatized by constant barrage of negativity, right? Those are the kids I worry about, the ones who are being raised in situations where they're constantly hearing yelling, they're constantly being yelled at, you know, whether or physically abused. I mean, it's like that's when, you know, you get trauma, right? That's when you get kids who have to, you know, to work with them in a trauma framework. But like if once a day, you know, it's like, I've said this a thousand times. Get dressed. You know, if that happens once a day, that's not going to be the end of the world for your kid. Right? It's really not. And parents worry about that a lot. They come in and they're like really worried that that's going to really, you know, traumatize their kids. Um, they're probably in deep shame about their own behavior. Yeah. What about parents fighting in front of their kids? Because I imagine, you know, that happens all the I've seen that happen. It happens all the time. What do you, what do you, what kind of advice do you give parents around their disagreements or even, even fights? How do, how to manage that with the kid and like, if it does happen? Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. don't do it. Yeah. I mean, grow a pair. Save your bullshit. <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's why I went into parent coaching. I'm like, I have no tolerance for couples acting like children when they're raising children around their children. They can go act like children at their couples therapy session, or they can go act like children like when their kids are asleep. Uh, but I, when you're with your kids, for me, it's all about being the best parents you can be. And if you're sitting in my office, I'm going to assume that that's what you want to do. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm give you advice how to do it. And, you know, yeah, like be the grownups and contain it. Because it's really scary for the kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And kids think yeah. every they're completely narcissistic. They think everything in their world is because of them and for them. Right. So parents are fighting because of them or parents are, are, are fighting. You know, there must be something wrong with them that their parents are fighting. Right. It's not they can't make that separation which is why, you know, why it's not a good thing to do. <laughs> I mean, and if it does happen, what do you like if, you know, there's some situation where where it's the the emotion spills over and it does happen, how do you fake you recommend for little kids fake making up in front of them? Kissing, ah. hugging, I love you. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry too. Shouldn't have yelled at you. I don't really mean that. Fake it. Which is probably fake, faking it probably helps actually the repair with the parents too. Yeah. 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 Fake it till you make it. I mean, you've maybe made it. Exactly. A little dishonesty is not so bad. Yeah. Kids have to see the physical making up to believe that everything's okay. 
I love that because, right, we try our best not to fight, but it's going to happen. I'm sure with everyone, it's, yeah, you fight in front of kids. Hopefully it's in a healthier way. But I love this idea of it's okay. Just make sure that they can they can watch you make up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And for yeah. parent for parenting couples who are in basically in, in you know in integrated and solid relationships, the little the bickering, little bickering or little fights. Yeah, again, if the kids see a makeup, if the kids see affection, um, if the kids hear you guys go like you know oh, that was really we were really that was really bad of us. You know, you know, sorry about that. You know are bad you know or if one parent in particular was like really acting badly for them to apologize you know and for the other one to be like it's okay honey I still love you you know kids need to see that right and it's a little bit counterintuitive because people don't necessarily want to be dishonest about their feelings right like it feels like a little bit like a manipulation or something like we're gonna make up and pretend it's okay but that makes a lot of sense if that's really important yeah it's also really interesting thinking about it this from a couples therapy perspective because so many couples come in and talk about their own parents and what they learned and didn't learn and i would say like a common theme is people that come in and say i saw my parents fight and i never saw them make up or i never saw my parents fight but there was always this feeling of anger you know and so it's it's also it 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 does have that impact yeah. and you can see it as adults. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And the self-blame that comes up over and over again. Yeah, what did I, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. something, there's something that I'm responsible for that made this happen or, yeah. Hi, Lovelink listeners. Our group practice, Modern Mind, is located in New York City with offices in Brooklyn and Manhattan offering in-person and virtual psychotherapy. We provide individual, couples, and group therapy, as well as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, in conjunction with a psychiatry prescriber. Therapy is a powerful experience that can transform your life and help you live it to its full potential. We're here to help take you where you want to go. To find out more about our practice, visit www.modernmind.co or Email info at modernmind.co to be connected with one of our therapists. Um, here's a common question. I've had it. I feel like some of my peers have had it, my clients, around the crying out method, to do it or not to do it. I'm sure you get this a lot, and I'm, I'm curious what your take is because I feel like there's so many different theories. There's so many different kind of philosophies around it. You need to let themselves soothe, but then if you neglect them too much, you're traumatizing them. What, yeah, what are your thoughts on crying I'm, out? I'm like a very, like, you got to do what works for you, really. It's like so kind of wide ranging. I'm like, you know, family bed, go for it. Cry it out, go for it. You know, something in between, go for it. It's really, that's one of the things that where there's really a no size fits all sort of um, approach. You know, some kids just even from the age, from infancy, to, you know, when they're older can tolerate sort of separation much more mm. easily than others. And um, some kids experience timeouts as, you know, abandonment. Others are like, cool, I'll go to my room by myself. That's fine. And there's no kind of, there's not like a reason that, you know, um, I don't think there's ever as much a reason about like, 
you know, how they've been raised that leads to that. I think a lot of that is sort of like constitutional and predisposed and genetic. Mm. So again, I feel like given people situ if people have like jobs they have to get up for at a certain hour <laughs> and their kids are like driving if they're if sleep deprivation yeah. is really an issue and making mm. you not half the person you want to be in the beginning, then do something more structured and you know, the cry it out sort of thing. Um that said, I find little kids crying just way too, you know, sort of like, you know, traumatizing. Pulls at the heartstrings. Pulls at the heartstrings. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, like there are sound canceling headphones and, you know, things like that mm-hmm. that can help. Um, but, yeah, it's not, there's no one way of dealing with it, with the, with the infants and with little babies. It's just, you know. It sounds like goodness of fit. I mean, it's fit. It's like both fit for the kids, fit for the parents, fit for their dynamic. Exactly. And not feeling yeah. shame, again, not feeling shame or blame for doing it one way or another, right? You know, it's sort of, you know, there's always going to be that other person mm-hmm. on the playground who's do it, who did it another way, who's like going to be like, oh, you're letting them cry it out? Or like, you know. Right, or, or, right. Oh, right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of shame that parents have, but there's a lot of judgment too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there's a reason for that shame, and I and I see it in the way that people talk about other people's parenting mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. oh, this person's too permissive, or oh, they let this ca- child cry for too long, or they oh, they came and coddled them. I mean, it's like you know, porridge is always too hot, too cold. Like parents really are set up to oftentimes not get it right in the eyes of others. Exactly. Yeah, and a lot of you know, it's it's hard to not. I, and and one thing I will say to people when they're really feeling that judgment thing is that like people who are judging you are generally doing it because they don't feel too solid in themselves, right? People don't go around being like super judgy unless they themselves are kind of insecure, right? Um, or they're questioning their own motivations or reasons for things. So, um, I mean, that's tough because it is, it's like, it's like, you know, you particularly young parents of young kids, you're in such a vulnerable state and and, and sleep deprived. And, you know, so it's, you're really like set up to be like kind of porous and take in all those like weird vibes from more judgmental people. Especially when it comes from family. Cause I remember like with the sleep training thing, my mom was very anti sleep training and my mother-in-law is very pro sleep training and it was like oh god i'm gonna do the wrong thing it's like something about this process of grandmothers transitioning to grandmothers and having to to let their daughters be moms that i i think is i think is like upsetting it's a process like they're losing control and power and then the the daughter who's now becoming the mother is both Mm -hmm, feeling like mm -hmm. i still need to listen to my own mom i'm questioning myself but i also want to take ownership it's like a real transition of role and identity yeah yeah and they are not sure exactly what they're supposed to say or do sometimes i mean there are those some who sort of like rush in as if the grandchild is their own baby but then there are the others that are like kind of do like a little bit of a sidestepy thing which is like you might want to see if her diaper needs to be changed right it's not like direct you know it's it's a, it is i think you're right, right it's a real right. transition for everybody um 
And yeah, it can be, it's, it's, it's another relationship to navigate. It's actually a great workshop for me to do. I'm now thinking. <laughs> yeah. For new moms. With moms and new parents. Yeah, yeah. 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 Because also I think there is a real longing for new moms to have their mother there. Like they also want their mothering. They want the support. They want to be fueled. And so that, that ends up getting kicked up too. Yeah. And let's not forget the men too, because yes, I feel yes. like a lot gets placed on women, and 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 uh, yeah, men need to take more of a role. Well, men need to take more of a role, and women have to stop being gatekeepers, and men have to just step up to the plate. But it's hard for men to step up to the plate when when they're being kind of micromanaged. Um, you know, this is also another love. One of the things I love doing is working with dads and empowering dads and, you know, all the incredible stuff. I think through Gottman, particularly the studies they did on how um, important it is for the kind of energy that men bring to parenting, the high kind of they're much more sort of um, they're better at like sort of rough and tumble play, which is really great for intellectual development and sort of physical um coordination but literally for the kids brains like so like you know I remember when my daughter was young and I was learning about this stuff and uh you know the higher you, you know throwing them her up and letting her fall on the bed and like all the kind of like crazy wild games that my husband would play with our daughter and I'd be a little bit like well you know don't break her um ended up like serving her well also just the you know if they go out wearing like mismatched socks or no hat. I mean, the thing is that, that men are so much more easily criticized for their parenting in public than women. Like, like all the like, like, you know, mamas who will come up to a kid in a stroller who's not wearing their coat and will say to a dad, you know, that kid should really be ha have a coat on, you know, <laughs> like they wouldn't do it to another mother, but they'll do it to a dude. And it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not cool. It's like this assumption of incompetence, yeah. which I imagine just fuels the father's questioning his own ability yeah. and, and then taking a further backseat. Yeah. 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 So yeah, what what do you do with dads to kind of empower them to well, help them take a I a lot of it is telling moms to get out of the way. <laughs> and yeah. also like letting dads kind of find their own groove at like what they're really good at. Like some dads are really great at doing um sort of game playing, you know, like they have more tolerance for you know, board games and block building and that kind of stuff. Um you know, and also just taking part in make, cooking meals, even if you cook crappy food. It's like making food and cleaning up and, you know, just, just being as much a participant as possible, you know. Um, it's, it's the more the more it can be shared, the better, you know. And it's hard in the beginning because babies need their mommies for physical stuff. And, you know, they tend to be much more sort of mommy centric until they're like two, three years old. And then sometimes dads become particularly for little boys, like dads become sort of like, whoa, I kind of look like him. exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. So and for not for neither p parent to ever feel, you know, like their their day will come. <laughs> you know, it does. If, if if they're around and they're present, they will, you know, they will become front and center for certain periods of time. So. Right. Because it's hard. Right. It must be hard for the parent who's not feeling like the preferred parent, like the favoritism that kind of go waxes and wanes over time. Yeah. 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 
I mean, all oftentimes, like what will happen is when kids are very kind of connected to their moms, and the moms leave the house, and you know, you can hear them going, "Mommy, my mommy, my mommy." It usually always ends after like five minutes. You know, it doesn't last, <laughs> and like so, you have to like stop standing by the door and listening. You just have to like leave the house, just go. And even if it goes on for half an hour, it's just still kind of it's a bonding experience between you know dad. And the kid, right? Oh, yeah, mommy's not here. Oh, I miss her too, you know? Like, you join right, with it right. somehow. But. Right. I hear a lot of what you're talking about has to do with parental engagement and being really attuned to kids. And I also think about how we live in a world where we're all easily distracted, we're all kind of ADD. I wonder how you talk to parents about that, because I imagine that you would want to really set a lot of boundaries around the use of technology and be, people being on their phone. I mean, you know, when I go to the playground, lots of parents and nannies are, are on their phone. And I'm always like, is that a, that seems like it's taking them away from the tunement. And um, yeah, I wonder how you talk to parents about that. Yeah, no, I, it's a big issue. You know, I try to get people to put the devices away, you know, as much as possible when they're with their kids. And um and try to not get too wrapped up in sort of playing games with kids on phones and stuff also, like, because that's the kind of, kids are so fascinated with technology also. But yeah, parents, yeah, the kind of, like, dependence on devices is, is bad. And even if, like, it's, it's an addiction, really, for everybody, and it, it, it definitely adds into the sort of splintered, distracted kind of culture that we live in. Um, so, you know, I'll often tell people, you know, if you're, if, you know, now it's different in, in pandemic times because everyone's working from home. But, um, a lot of times when I would have parents who would be coming home, like getting off the subway, walking home to kind of prepare themselves on their journey from, you know, on the train, you can like look at your phone as much as you want. But like when you get up, when you come up those subway steps, you know, that this is your preparation time to full engagement with your kid for whatever, an hour till they go to sleep, two hours till they're asleep, you know, um, unless you're like a neurosurgeon who's on call, really? Do you really need to have your phone with you at all times? I don't think you do. Um, you know, also if there's some issue about around that, you know, maybe you play tag team with your spouse or your partner, you kind of are like, okay, I'm going to be with them for like this next half an hour. Here's my phone. If, you know, text or call comes through from work, come and get me. You know, it's like you don't yeah. need it. <laughs> right. So you can prepare yourself. And so much of it is is modeling, too, because if, if like your child is seeing you on the phone all the time, they're going to be super excited by using it, too. Yeah. Yeah. And and just to like comment about the addictive quality. I mean, it's it's pretty wild. Like if John and I have the TV on, my daughter will I mean, she's three and a half months and she just like looks at the TV screen like with excitement. Yeah. So even then, you know, and they're not even processing what's happening. It's like that light, that intensity. I mean, it's just like you see how it can be such a fixation. It's scary. Yeah, it's scary. It is scary. And it's just getting, you know, and I mean, I remember, you know, my daughter is almost 30 now, but I remember when she was also a baby and and this was even before cell phones. It was just sort of like the television, the screen, you know, and then the first computers. It's just like, there's something about it. Um, I mean, 
I'm sick of them. <laughs> but, you know, it's like now that we have to do it like this all the time, it's like get me away from screens. But I think also we have to let parents off the hook a tiny bit with this, though, not in their behavior, but in the understanding of why it happens. Because everyone is so sort of depleted sometimes in parenting that the only way that they know to disengage from their kids while being with their kids is to go to their phone, right? So the kids are playing and they're just sort of, and and, and, a, and, a, and a stressed out, tired dad or mom is just sitting there. Like they're, they don't know how to just self-soothe in that moment. So what do they do? They'd go to check Instagram or they go, like they're not, and so another thing I like to work with parents on, and I'll even send them to sort of like mindfulness experts or get them to do some meditation apps or just learn how to just be present in the moment without having to do look at something, right? To just sit there, to just space out, to just think, mm. right? Or maybe there's some household chore that they can involve themselves with while the kid is playing. Or, you know, it's like they don't go to the phone. (laughs) It's a muscle. You have to really, like, train yourself Mm -hmm. not to just automatically. Because oftentimes, if I'm going to my phone, I don't even realize I am. Yeah. And then I'm, like, looking passively, and it's it's so unconscious. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. Think about how weird it must be for, like, a little a baby or a toddler who doesn't really know what a phone is or like what's in there to see an adult like constantly looking at this weird box <laughs> like I know. what's it's in so the box strange. you know it's so weird yeah. yeah yeah and and also if you think about it if it's as that hard for for people like us who are involved in engagement with other people right this is like what we do for us it's even hard right so like for people yeah. who you know don't even have that kind of you know, motivation. It's just like, go for the phone. <laughs> right, right, right. right. It's yeah. impossible for for a kid. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm aware of time, um, and you know, we talked about all of these resources out there, and it's hard to know what's good, what's not. Do you have any kind of go-to book recommendations or, or things that you um, recommend to parents to look into? Yeah, I do have a Resources. few things that I always like come back to and then I'll recommend. One, again, is so this, though, I mean, and I can, I'll send you guys sort of links and information if you kind of can put it on the... In the link notes, that'd be great. Yeah. So I'm a real fan of, you know, some old time people who are still really relevant. Um, The work of Ron Taffel, who's Mm -hmm. very, uh, one of his great classic books is Nurturing Good Children Now, which is about, um, you know, values and morals and creating like sort of good citizens, you know, people who are empathic and aware of others. so any, anything he does, I think, is great. Um, I'm also Bonnie Harris has a great book, which is called "When Kids Push When Your Kids Push Your Buttons and What to Do About It." Um, and what's what's nice about her work is it's very self reflective, and she has a bunch of like kind of work kind of like worksheets to go through about challenging your assumptions about what behavior means and noticing your agenda and your kids' agenda and where they crossover and where they don't um you know projections and a lot of like sort of inner self-work that parents can do so that they don't get so easily triggered by their kids 
Um, so I recommend Bonnie Harris. Um, like I said, the Jed Baker book, No More Meltdowns is a good one. Um, you know, the classic How to Listen to Your Kids So Your Kids Will Talk and Talk to Your Kids So Your Kids Will Listen by, I forget, Malish and I think, what's, I can't remember what the other woman's name is, but it's a classic book, which is also has um, like comics that you can f follow. So visual kind of representations of how to, of scripts almost, of how to talk mm. to kids at different developmental stages. And it's very much about, again, empathic listening um, and not, not blaming, like not using blaming language. Um, they don't go quite as far as I do where I ask parents to take on the feelings for the, of the kids, um, which is sort of my thing, just sort of like it's for, pretty, for little kids. It's like you do what you think the kid is feeling and then go through the acts of solving and fixing it for yourself. Um, but that what's really great about those books are also for parents who don't necessarily have a lot of sort of, you know book smart intellectual proclivities it's a those are really great kind of scripts for them um and then i'm a big fan of the gottman work for transition to parenthood for people who are pregnant going through the early stages of parenthood and that's really about the couple relationship it's always you know gottman's the gottman's are you know couples therapists and um but this is the work they particularly do with transition to parenthood for new parents um, and I think like I think the first book is called like bringing baby home or something like that but yeah so those are my main I'd say those are my main go-tos um, and I know there are plenty of other ones out there now too but it's, that's great yeah, yeah we'll definitely put a link helpful. in our session notes yeah and if you could give we always ask this question at the end of our interviews if you could give parents um, one piece of advice what what would you give them Maybe we can maybe we can narrow it down to new parents. Yeah, new parents. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. If you get, give us right. one piece of advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah okay. exactly. <laughs> yeah, take ten deep breaths and then trust your gut. Mm, mm, I like one. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll try and take okay. that in. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's no. daunting, right? It's sort of The like, trusting oh. your gut is, is hard, yeah. mm. especially I think when you're anxious and you're so worried about doing the right thing. It's mm. like you lose access to that. Yeah. 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 And also trust your gut. Do what your gut tells you. And if it doesn't work out, do something else. Mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? right? You can always yeah. change. You can always change. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful. Great. Well, thank yes. you guys for having me. It was really fun talking to you and good luck with your little babies. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. 
Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Lovelink show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.